Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 17th of September 2023, 11 o'clock service. Katie Loffman speaking on Psalm 2. Good morning. A year ago, we had the coronation of a new king. Well, actually, you said it was this year, so maybe I've got my dates wrong, but not long ago, we saw the coronation of our new king. In ancient Egypt, sorry, in ancient Israel, the coronation of a new king was an opportunity to remind God's people of the kingship of God. And it was the same with the coronation service last year. The ceremony acknowledged that Charles is ruling under God's authority. It emphasised the fact that he's a king who's put on the throne to serve, and not only to serve his people, but above all, to serve God. And that's one reason why he's crowned by a bishop in a church. It's a demonstration that it's God who gives him his authority to rule. So when a king is crowned, it helps us to remember that God is the true king, the ruler over everything, and all the power and authority that an earthly ruler has comes from God. But more than that, in the Old Testament, a coronation was also a time to look forward God does rule over the world, but it's hard to see. The coronation was when people could look forward to the time when God's rule over the world would become complete, a time to remind themselves that that day would come. Jesus won the victory over the powers of evil, and one day we'll see those evil powers completely wiped out, and God's reign of love in full view everywhere. For the Jews, the coronation of a new king was a massive visual aid of that day which they and we are looking forward to. And that's what this psalm is about. It's operating on three levels. On the surface, it's a song of praise to the king, perhaps particularly a new king, and a celebration of his power over Israel's enemies. But it's also looking forward in prophecy to the time when Jesus will defeat his enemies in the same way through his sacrifice on the cross. And it's looking further ahead too to the time when that rule will come into fruition and we'll see him reigning in all his glory. When I was in Anglesey once with my sisters, we went for a walk in Snowdonia. We started in a valley where the road was and we decided to walk up to the top of the hill that was right in front of us. We thought it would take us to a small summit and we could enjoy the view. But as we got close to the top of that hill, we started to see another summit looming up ahead of us. Our hill was only the bottom half of that much bigger hill. No problem, we said, we'll walk to the top of that one. I don't know if you've had this experience, but of course, before we got to the top of that higher hill, we started to realise that, again, it was only part of a much bigger mountain. We never did get to the top. There was always another summit just out of reach. And this is how prophecy works, and we see it in a lot of psalms. They were written at a particular time for a particular purpose. And maybe a lot of the people singing them at that time only saw that immediate meaning, a psalm of praise for the king. That's the first level of hills. But as history unfolded, and we can look back, we see that many of the psalms are also pointing to Jesus. They're prophecies of the coming of Israel's Messiah. That deeper meaning is buried behind the first meaning, 
using the same imagery and the same words. It would be easy to think that that's the end summit, the top of the prophecy. But now those prophecies are being fulfilled in Jesus and we start to realize that there's another prophecy that still lies ahead. And that's the time when God's kingdom will be fully revealed and Jesus will reign undisputed. We may think that when those prophecies are fulfilled, the picture will be complete. But the Bible is not very specific and those further mountains are still very much in the mist. But we know that they're there. And the prophecies we read in Psalms like this one, Psalm 2, can help us to see more of what's in the mist ahead. And they assure us that the mist that's hiding the future is God's love. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs that have been used by God's people for thousands of years. They praise God, they make prophecies, they tell stories, they express emotions. And they put all of those things into the context of God's righteous power. God is our creator, our ruler. He loves his people. And the Psalms remind us that because of that, he's a God that we can trust. And that's true even when circumstances make it seem otherwise. As Stephen said last week, this one, Psalm 2, forms part of the introduction to the whole book, and it's a counterpoint to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a lush description of the blessings that come when we walk in God's way and turn away from any temptation to do wrong. You'll flourish like a tree. This one starts from the other side. It's a description of the futility of turning away from God. When people conspire against God and plot against his anointed king, God just laughs at them. Then he terrifies them by giving his authority to Israel's king. And the psalm ends with a warning to everyone to serve God and respect God's people because God has the power to destroy those who don't, to smash them like pottery. On the other hand, if they trust God and come to him for help, God will bless them, as he says in Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 tells us the blessings that come from following God, and Psalm 2 is the flip side of that, the warning to Israel's enemies and God's enemies of what could happen to them if they refuse to submit to God's rule. And Psalm 1 and 2 together introduce these two themes which are then explored throughout all the rest of the Psalms in a whole host of different contexts and from different points of view. It leaves us with the stark choice, which side are you? Are you a fruitful tree or are you a broken pot? I would love to be a flourishing, well-watered tree bursting with the fruits of the Spirit and bringing beauty and blessings to my surroundings. But the fact is, I often feel like a bit of broken pottery. Sometimes it's hard to tap into the nourishing water of God's word. I always feel like I should be doing more. Sometimes it's hard to stay focused on God and not be sidetracked by the temptations of the world around me, laziness, materialism, escapism. The way of the righteous, as Psalm 1 puts it, is a hard road to stick to. And we can end up feeling less like a fruitful tree and more like a smashed pot. But actually, that's not what this psalm is referring to. So if you feel like that too, let me reassure you, 
It's talking about God's enemies. That's people who actively reject God and don't want to know. It's people who persecute Christians or make fun of their faith. It's presidents and governments who ride roughshod over the poor and disadvantaged in their countries that have been entrusted to them. It's people who've decided that the Ten Commandments are just chains designed to hold, the, hold us back from doing what we want to do. I once knew somebody who boasted that he had broken nearly all the Ten Commandments and he was very proud of that fact and he seemed determined to complete the set although I'm not sure if he had it in him to be a murderer, and I don't know how he's getting on with that project, but <laughs> I'm not in touch with him, thank goodness. He seemed, I mean, but he, like anyone else like him, would do well to hear the warning in verse 10. Be warned, be wise, it says. Serve the Lord, because you're on the path to destruction. God is calling out to all those people to change their ways and to come humbly to Jesus. As Christians, it can be easy for us to feel that we fall short. And of course, in many ways we do. And that's why we need forgiveness. But that doesn't make us God's enemies. The most important thing is that we're on the right side and we can be forgiven. We're trying to do our best for God. We ask for his help to keep us right. And as Psalm 2 puts it, we can always take refuge in him and his love. If we don't make an enemy of God, then God will always protect us. He'll never break us or smash us up. Taking refuge in God is not just the message of Psalm 2, but it's one of the themes of the whole book of Psalms. It comes up again and again, and this introductory psalm is flagging it up here. It's a message that's literally central to the whole Bible. I'll show you what I mean. The book of Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. And uh, Psalm 118, verse 8, is the middle verse of the whole Bible. It says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. The book of Psalms and its message is central to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Its prophecies sit between the fulfilled messages of the life of Israel and the coming of the Messiah on the one hand in the past, and on the other, the prophecies that we're still looking forward to in the future of Jesus returning and the coming of God's kingdom. And verse 1 is a clear example of that. Reading in the Old Testament, you can't help noticing that there's a lot of fighting. Israel's neighbours seem to be constantly attacking them, or vice versa. It must have been very stressful. And that's where the psalm begins. Why? Why do they keep attacking us? Then the psalm continues with the message that God will destroy those enemies. Israel was a tiny country wedged between warring tribes and powerful empires, Philistine, Babylon, Assyria. So it was very reassuring to remind themselves and those powerful neighbors that God could destroy them. So when a new king came to the throne, the people used this psalm to assert the king's strength because he was anointed by God himself on his holy mountain and God has made him his son. That's the message of Psalm 2 to the people at the time it was written. Then Jesus came 
and he took on himself those titles that belonged to the kings of Israel and to the nation of Israel as a whole, the Son of God, the Anointed One. Not just the Anointed King, but the Anointed Messiah. But of course the rulers massively conspired against Jesus in, as foretold in Psalm 2, and he was put to death. But we know that in that death he destroyed evil, he smashed it like pottery and became king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And verse 8 and 9 point to that. I will make the nations your inheritance, not just the nation of Israel. The ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. On the cross, Jesus destroyed evil like it was pottery, smashing it to smithereens. After Jesus, his disciples in the early church saw another meaning to the psalm, one that was directly relevant to them. In Acts chapter 4, our second reading, Peter and John have just been hauled up before the Sanhedrin for preaching about Jesus. They were saying that the Jews had rejected and killed their own Messiah, which didn't go down too well. Eventually, the Sanhedrin let them go, and they went straight back to the other Christians and they all prayed. And the beginning of Psalm 2 was the basis of their prayer. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They were watching exactly that happening right before their eyes in their own life. It must have felt incredible to remember that psalm and to realise that it was take, talking literally about what had happened to them that day. And that was a source of great hope and courage. Seeing it with the eyes of faith meant that they could recognise in verse 28 that somehow it was all part of God's plan, decided beforehand. And of course there have been and still are plenty of other occasions when the same thing happens. Rulers rise up to persecute and imprison Christians in many parts of the world throughout history and today. They're not just attacking Christians, but conspiring against God and the Lord Jesus too. It's passages like Psalm 2 and Acts 4 that warn us that that kind of thing is to be expected. But like Peter and John, we know that their activities are ultimately futile because Jesus has defeated the powers of evil. And that's the future layer of that prophecy, the ongoing battle between God and the powers of evil, which Jesus won on the cross. Jesus has taken the whole world and the whole spiritual world away from the grip of evil. And the time will come when we will see that in all its reality, when Jesus returns and his kingdom comes here on earth. And in the meantime, we have the choice to reject God and plot against his people, which will ultimately destroy us, or to come to Jesus for forgiveness and protection and be blessed. And we can hang on to that in our own lives now. But first, we must examine ourselves is there any part of us which is conspiring against God? Is there a voice which says, I want to be my own boss? Do we use our power to make choices which go against God's guidance? Let's ask God to destroy that part of us. 
to smash to bits anything in us which is resisting God's control in our life. In its place, we want to serve God more completely, delighting in him like the man in Psalm 1. Everyone, you, me, President Putin, everyone has the chance to serve and change and to serve God, to take refuge in his love. And in that way, anyone can escape this destruction if they choose to. So that's just part of the multi-layered message of Psalm 2. It's about God's power and his love and his open arms calling us to take refuge in him. And it's telling us that there'll be more about all of those things in the rest of the book of Psalms to come. <laughs>